Hello, I'm Greg. Let's have an inappropriate conversation about my prayer for a football game or a commencement ceremony. Okay, I think I've certainly laid my cards on the table on how important it is for ideas to include a free and open exchange of a great deal of detail, of background, of the full story. And in that interest, I'm going to take a couple of weeks here and talk about my notions of prayer, prayer in public life, and particularly prayer in schools, and do so with what I consider to be the appropriate amount of detail. And I want to start by reading an email written by somebody else, because this email is a pretty good representation of what I consider to be perhaps the other point of view. So for the first time ever, I'm going to put a little background music behind it, going to try to provide another opinion that in this case I may not necessarily be endorsing. And then I will return to some key points in that email from somebody that I'm going to call Sam, and I'll respond. Okay, so here's the point of view of somebody who sent an email opinion far and wide many years ago, about prayer in public life. I don't believe in Santa Claus, but I'm not going to sue somebody for singing a ho-ho-ho song in December. I don't agree with Darwin, but I didn't go out and hire a lawyer when my high school teacher taught his theory of evolution. Life, liberty, or your pursuit of happiness will not be endangered because someone says a 30-second prayer before a football game. So what's the big deal? It's not like somebody is up there reading the entire book of Acts. They're just talking to a guy they believe in, asking him to grant safety to the players on the field and the fans going to and from the game. But it's a Christian prayer, some will argue. Yes, and this is the United States of America, a country founded on Christian principles. And we are in the Bible Belt. According to our very phone book, Christian churches outnumber all others by better than 200 to 1. So what would you expect? Somebody chanting Hare Krishna? If I went to a football game in Jerusalem, I would would expect to hear a Jewish prayer. If I went to a soccer game in Baghdad, I would expect to hear a Muslim prayer. If I went to a ping pong match in China, I would expect to hear someone pray to Buddha. And I wouldn't be offended. It wouldn't bother me one bit. When in Rome. But what about the atheists, is the other argument. What about them? Nobody is asking them to be baptized. We're not going to pass the collection plate. Just humor us for 30 seconds. If that's asking too much, bring a Walkman or a pair of earplugs. Go to the bathroom, visit the concession stand, call your lawyer. Unfortunately, one or two will make that call. One or two will tell thousands what they can and cannot do. I don't think the short prayer at a football game is going to shake the world's foundations. Christians are just sick and tired of turning the other cheek while our courts strip us of all our rights. Our parents and our grandparents taught us to pray before eating, to pray before we go to sleep. Our Bible tells us just to pray without ceasing. Now, a handful of people and their lawyers are telling us to cease praying. God, help us. And if that last sentence offends you, well, just sue me. The silent majority have been silent too long. It's time we let that one or two who scream loud enough to be heard that the vast majority don't care what they want. It is time that the majority rules. It's time that we tell them, you don't have to pray. 
You don't have to say the Pledge of Allegiance. You don't have to believe in God or attend services that honor Him. That is your right, and we will honor your right. But by golly, you are not going, you are no longer going to be able to take our rights away. We are fighting back, and we will win. All capitals will win. After all, the God you have the right to denounce is on our side. God bless us one and all, especially those who denounce Him. God bless America, despite all her faults, still the greatest nation of all. God bless our servicemen who are fighting to protect our right to pray and worship God. May 2003 be the year the silent majority is heard and we put God back as the foundation of our families and our institutions. Keep looking up. In God we trust. If you agree with this, pass it on. If not, delete it. I hope I wasn't inappropriate with the exclamation points at the end, but the word delete it, followed by two exclamation points, seemed only fair that I... uh, that I provide that kind of emphasis. Hi there, this is Stu the Beard Perry entreating you to please listen to our show for those about to rock on simplysyndicated.com. Please listen to our show, please! Okay, so that's the text of an email that showed up via family members, uh, broadcast to a lot of people, you know, one of those emails that tends to get passed on to almost everybody in your email address book. And um, I pondered over it for a while. I knew I wanted to reply directly to the person who sent it to me because I had some thoughts on this particular email. But instead, I ended up replying to everyone that, you know, it was sort of a reply all situation. I'm not a big fan of that approach, but in this case, it certainly seemed necessary. And it might help get the answers I was providing back to the original letter writer, which I thought was probably a very good idea, particularly since I was going to address some of his thoughts point by point. So here's what I said in response. I don't know, Sam, but I'm responding anyway. As Christians and as Americans, we are in grave danger of losing sight of who we are. To his point, I don't agree with Darwin. I said more Christians have filed lawsuits and legislation than the other way around. Decades before the O'Hares or anyone else went to court over prayer and devotionals in schools, Southern fundamentalists took the schools to court. Going to court every time someone offends you is one of this nation's greatest problems. It certainly isn't a solution to anything. As Christians, we need to acknowledge that we are part of the problem. To his point, because someone says a 30-second prayer, what's the big deal? Nothing makes me sadder than Christians saying prayer is not a big deal. I'm sure he doesn't mean it, at least not that way. But people who don't even understand what prayer is are constantly hearing us say It's not a big deal. It's just a prayer. It's not like we expect God to answer. Let me say it again if I haven't said it clearly enough before. One of my biggest problems with the prayers that open sessions of Congress, for example, is that almost no one in that hallowed body, including the Christians, is expecting an answer. Sadly, the opposite is true. To Sam's point when in Rome... The problem with saying that putting up with Muslim prayers when you visit the Middle East compares to this situation is simple. Both the believers in America and the non-believers in America are the Romans in this analogy. Yes, when I visit a foreign country, we do things their way. Do we honestly believe that atheists who are born and raised here are somehow not Americans? Once you communicate that point of view, you lose people. They stop listening and you lose them that way. You also lose their soul, though. As David Winter once said, paraphrasing, those who experience your love today will be much more interested in your faith tomorrow. 
Well, what about those who experience your hate? What about those that some Christians subconsciously view as being not even Americans? To his point, what about the atheists? And uh, him saying, you know, no one's asking them to be baptized. We're not going to pass the collection plate. Just humor us for 30 seconds. To say just humor us is another way of saying it's no big deal. When we take this point of view, we Christians are saying that what we are doing is not threatening and perhaps not important. I've said it in previous correspondence, and I'll say it again. If your prayers don't carry the potential power to radically change the world, then you are not praying. And no, I won't humor a sham prayer. One or two will tell thousands what they can and cannot do. Okay, well... If any one thing is true of the United States of America, it's that our country was founded on the principle that one or two people can tell thousands or millions or billions what they can and cannot do in the realm of personal liberty. We set up a country, like it or not, where people do not have to worship if they do not choose to. It works both ways, though. If hundreds of millions of people decide to ban the Christian faith here in America, our Constitution will stop them if one or two of us stand up. I will. The question is, will you? Before you answer that, you may want to rethink whether you live in a country that gives majority rule the final national authority. For me, I'll keep that final national authority inside the U.S. Constitution and the Bill of Rights. Well, what about the idea that Christians are just sick and tired of turning the other cheek while our courts strip us of all our rights? Please, all Christians who are sick and tired of turning the other cheek, do me a favor now stop everything including listening to this and immediately read the gospel according to matthew chapters 5 6 and 7 read them completely read them carefully that is jesus speaking in the sermon on the mount he is telling you that being tired of turning the other cheek is not a right you've been given as a christian also while it doesn't say so directly in the text jesus is also telling you that he could care less what rights you believe you do and don't have as a citizen of a country as the book of revelations makes clear the lord is not expecting us to take over the government that's going to be his job the ten commandments and the first two in particular make it clear that it is a grave sin to confuse our role with his role our bible tells us to pray without ceasing well, you know what? If you are truly praying without ceasing, then there is nothing an army of lawyers can do. Prayer without ceasing is not some Middle Ages chant leading a parade of self-flagellation. It's personal. It's private. If that doesn't resonate with you, then please refer again to the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6 in particular. People who go to these ball games often have to stop praying without ceasing long enough to humor a public display of piety long enough to satisfy the Romans, only to then resume their constant prayer after the, after the event is underway. It's sad but true. I'm going to take a quick break here and refer to the kind of prayer I would lead if somebody handed me a microphone at a ball game and said, I want you to lead the prayer or an appropriate prayer for this particular kind of venue. This is something that I've never done before on this particular show. So I'm getting a little bit out of my comfort zone because again, for me, prayer is an ongoing conversation, not something that's pre-scripted in advance necessarily, but here, here we go. Almighty God, please hear our prayer this day as we acknowledge that we need your forgiveness for so many things. 
Many of us, for example, seek to address you only in very public settings like this one. Football games, graduation ceremonies, weddings and funerals. We pray for your guidance that each of us may find our own private place to commune with you, like a mountaintop for Moses, a remote garden for Jesus, and a cave for Muhammad. Please help each of us find a place that appropriately leads to personal prayer with you. We acknowledge that competition has led us to this place, some to struggle in the contest, others to entertain and accompany the cheering crowds, and still others to enjoy both the event and the fellowship it brings. Help us to remember that it is only by your gracious will that any of us have been blessed to be here. Watch over those who have been unable to participate, whether they have suffered injury or other circumstances. We pray that no new injuries or harm will come to any of the participants and spectators here today. Finally, Lord, while we focus our attention on this event, we know that there are other concerns, and those concerns we will continue to hold in our hearts. There are citizens of a faraway country who have experienced political repression at the hands of their earthly leaders, and many of them are now innocently caught in the crossfire of armed conflict. In our country, thousands of families continue to heal from the wounds left by the tragic and unexpected loss of loved ones. In our own lives, there are yet other tragedies, perhaps less extreme, that we also lift up to you in prayer. May our actions in this setting reflect the loving brotherhood we feel about the many who cannot be here with us. Almighty God, we thank you for the opportunity to stand before you at this time and place. May we show that thanks by viewing the term Amen, not as a coda or a goodbye, but in the way that it was intended. Let it be so. Help us to bring the words of our hearts into action. Amen. A couple of things about this prayer that are noteworthy. First off, clearly the very beginning is, is almost an inappropriate political attack, but sometimes the words need to be spoken. But the other thing is probably the length. You know, this isn't just, again, a 30-second, let me throw something out there to prove I'm a good person. It's if, I'm gonna, if you're going to hand me a microphone and say, Greg, it's time to pray, I'm going to pray. And it's certainly going to be more spontaneous than this document that I just shared. But I wanted to use that as an example. Would I go on for two minutes, three minutes, four minutes? I very well might. Well, I head in a distinctly ecumenical direction and include as many different people as I possibly can. Uh, certainly, if it's, a, if it's that kind of a public venue, I'm not going to use that as an attempt to, um, again, very proudly and very boastfully um, share my beliefs and my faith with people, whether they want to hear it or not. It seems to me if it's an event like that, I need to make sure that I'm looking more toward including everyone in this communal worship moment, this moment of all of us collectively sharing with God. That doesn't work if I'm too restrictive, if I'm too selective in who I include and who I don't. Picking back up with Sam's comments, when he gets to uh, God help us, and if that last sentence offends you, just sue me. The silent majority has been silent too long, and it's time that we, that we let those one or two people who scream loud enough that uh, we don't care what they want. It's time the majority rules. I hope I've covered ruling majorities well enough already. Why does it matter? Well, what happens if that majority does flip to the other side? No, it won't happen in the realm of civic religion. It might, though, if we continue our national obsession with suing people who offend us. For the record, one, the Sacramento family who sued over the Pledge of Allegiance was wrong. 
not on the grounds that the Pledge of Allegiance was not offensive, but instead on the grounds that the First Amendment specifically protects offensive speech. Two, when Jerry Falwell sued Larry Flint and Hustler magazine over a mean-spirited and offensive cartoon, Falwell was wrong for the same reasons. Christians engage in as much moral relativism as the rest of our culture, and we unwittingly are validating the national disgrace of denying the validity of ultimate truth. If we think Falwell was doing the right thing, and the Sacramento family was doing the wrong thing, then we are encouraging a virulent form of moral relativism. The bottom line, in America there is no constitutional right against being offended. And if we Christians continue to help establish such a standard, then our ability to accurately communicate the gospel will be fatally compromised. Why? The Holy Spirit uses the gospel to convict, to offend, to call to attention where we fall short. It's one of the first steps toward recognizing our need for God. Be careful about making laws against offending people. Well, what about the notion that it's time we tell them you don't have to pray? That's a direct quote from Sam. It's time we tell them you don't have to pray. No, no, no. We should never tell anyone that they don't have to pray. The Constitutional Amendment, Section 2 of it, proposed by Glenn Istook, Republican from Oklahoma, was going to make a constitutional right not to pray. No. Everyone, whether they know it or not, needs to pray. On the other hand, we Christians gain nothing when we try to force people to pray. Ultimately, trying to force them leads to statements like, well, you don't have to participate, or this may not be for you, or when in Rome, or you don't have to pray. To the notion that 2003 may be the year that we put God back into our families and institutions, I only say this. I mean, obviously, this is a good seven years ago. But even if the same statement were made today, perhaps in a rally on the Washington Mall, I would say this. Yes, we do need to put God back into our families. We have a lot of Christian families who need to put God back into their Christian families, for starters. All of these problems lead back to family. You see, you cannot force, using our current Constitution, a family to do what you want against their will. But you can lead by example. Claims that we should stop turning the other cheek are not the right example. Desires to put up a majority rule government rather than our constitutional republic that actually protects minorities, that's not the right example. Saying things like prayer is powerless or trivial, like, well, it's just a prayer, that's not the right example. We Christians had better start setting that right example as soon as possible, though, before unbelievers stop listening to us altogether. And you know what? Once we do that, once we do start setting the right example, well, then people will put God back into their families. Institutions don't matter, to tell you the truth. When you win the family, you win the heart of our country. Our constitutional design means that institutions are powerless to stop these individual liberties. So the last thing that Sam says in his email is, if you agree with this, please pass it on, and if not, delete it. I'm sorry, I took another route. Not agree, not delete, respond. As Christians, we need to respond especially to our own shortcomings, before we attempt to sue or legislate our way into the hearts of others. You're never going to sue your way into someone's heart. You're never going to legislate a change of heart. Even a simple reading of the gospel should renew our minds to the fact that you cannot legislate a change of heart. And God wants the hearts of men, not the civic and ceremonial laws of a nation. At the time I wrote this, I gave Sam a different email address, but I did end it by saying, hey, I can be reached at IC underscore Greg at Hotmail.com. 
If you read this and would like to read me chapter and verse, so to speak, go right ahead. I also can be reached on the website inappropriateconversations.podbean.com where comments are enabled. So essentially, I spoke my mind, responded point by point to the things in the email that I thought were you know, perhaps dead wrong, and left open that door for communication. A second email came a little bit later, which I thought was kind of interesting, where a Tennessee principal had left her or his career on the line by defying the authority of both really, truthfully, the state and the federal government uh, when it comes to the question of prayer before prayer before football games. The message had come down that <clears throat> there would not be a public service announcement prayer before the game. And the principal had sent out an email calling for help, support, asking for people to step in and intervene because in the principal's mind, something really terrible happened because there was no prayer led over the PA system in a uh, stadium that maybe held 7,000 people at the most, two or 3,000 people prayed silently by themselves. I'm like, I read that email because my mom sent it to me and I I read the email. I thought, I'm very confused here. This doesn't sound like it's a problem. If almost half of a 7,000 capacity stadium full of people were not being led in a canned recitative prayer over a PA system, stood at the beginning of the game after the national anthem and prayed anyway, isn't that the solution? Isn't that the reason that I would suggest that I'm still going to continue to be an active Christian, whether I've got a, um, you know, a mosque or a Jewish, a Jewish synagogue next to my church or not? whether I even have a church to go to or not. If, if, if I don't have a church building to go to, we're going to worship right here in my home. It strikes me that that's exactly what Jesus would want to see, as opposed to the exact opposite. So I'm very confused by all of the hyperbole. It seems that some of these folks are more interested in the government endorsing their religion, giving them a permission or a stamp of approval, or giving them the first place, the exalted spot before all ball games and and commencement ceremonies, and to begin the school day, and so forth and so on. And it doesn't necessarily have to do that much with Jesus at all. Because I didn't see Jesus being removed from the ball game in that Tennessee um, football situation. If anything, he was exalted. Because instead of one person praying and a whole bunch of people smiling and nodding, thousands of people prayed. Thousands of people prayed, and the person standing right next to him in the stands kind of had to account for the fact that, hang on a second, this guy's not listening to me. He's got his head bowed. He's whispering something. He's praying that we're going to pray even when the PA announcer doesn't. We're going to pray even if the electricity goes out and the sound system doesn't work at all. Wow. Please tell me that's not a problem that you as a Christian think we should solve. You can call this an ironic twist if you want to, but our different drummer today is one of the leaders of the rock group XTC, Andy Partridge. I'll get to the idea of why selecting Andy Partridge is ironic in a moment, but first, a little bit about the band XTC. Branching from the very early period of what we would call new wave music, very uh, energetic, very electric, very uh, keyboard-driven in a lot of ways, with high energy, something music to bounce to for their first couple of albums, Around the time their third album hit, both of the principal songwriters of the band really came into their maturity in a way that really caught my ear. I I wasn't aware of XTC until after they'd released English Settlement. 
So I had to go back a few albums. And the album that I sort of attached myself to is the starting point. It wasn't their first record, but it was the first record when they sounded like the band that I had already come to enjoy was Drums and Wires. So why am I making a different drummer out of Andy Partridge and not Colin Moulding? Well, as much as I respect Colin Moulding, I really prefer Andy Partridge. I can remember every time getting an XTC album, making sure I flipped onto the label of the record itself so I could see who the songwriting credits belonged to. Because I just had a sense that no matter how much I enjoyed the other songs on the record, I was more likely to be engaged, entertained perhaps, but definitely had my thoughts provoked by the work of Andy Partridge. On the Drums and Wires album, the big hits were all uh, the other writer, Making Plans for Nigel, Life Begins at the Hop. These are Colin Moulding's tracks. But Helicopter, um, with its sense of humor and its musical touches, uh, was the, the Andy Partridge track, the first one, the earliest one in, in his entire songwriting career, that I remember saying, yeah, that's a song I really enjoyed. After that, their next couple of albums, Serious in the Best Sort of Ways, Black Sea was the album that they came out with afterward. Again, an album that had already been released when I discovered the band. And the contributions to that one by Andy Hartford included Respectable Street, could be my all-time favorite XTC song, and Burning with Optimism's Flames. Once again, the big single release was probably Generals and Majors by Molding, but I found more rewards in the songs that were not released as the first quote-unquote big hit. Perhaps the best-known and biggest single in XTC's career written by Andy Partridge it was Senses Working Overtime from the English Settlement album. And with that one, Yacht Dance, and in a sort of a strange, ironic way, it's nearly Africa. These were songs which told me that I was dealing with um, a band that had actually really reached what, in retrospect, might even be considered to be full maturity. And XTC, had, at that point, really solidified their position for me. I know as I skip forward a few albums... I'm going to jump past some songs that many people love by the band XTC. Love on a Farm Boy's Wages, for example. Uh, and for me, Scarecrow People, one of my favorites from Oranges and Lemons. But I want to get all the way to the um, Nonsuch album and to talk particularly about the song The Ballad of Peter Pumpkinhead. There are a couple of songs here that I want to mention in the context of discussing the politics of prayer that really XTC has a lot to say about. One of them from this uh, later work, Nonsuch, The Ballad of Peter Pumpkinhead, is perhaps my favorite of Andy Partridge's challenging lyrical pieces of songwriting. But the one that I think is perhaps my least favorite song of his, certainly my least favorite song of his that's a single, is from an earlier work called Dear God. And as I quote it, I think you'll understand what my issues or what my, my hesitations about the song might be. The lyrics of Andy Partridge. Dear God, hope you got the letter. And I pray that you can make it better down here. I don't mean a big reduction in the price of beer, but all the people that you made in your image, see them starving on their feet because they don't get enough to eat. From God, I can't believe in you. Dear God, sorry to disturb you, but I feel that I should be heard loud and clear. We all need a big reduction in the amount of tears. And all the people that you made in your image, see them fighting in the streets because they can't make opinions meet about God. I can't believe in you. He goes on from there in a song that I would defend any Christian for finding offensive, but I want to stand up for Andy Partridge's right to offend. This is an interesting character, somebody who has entered into this, to the realm of songwriting in a time and place where people might have been writing more pop, more dance sort of numbers, pre-grunge, um, pre, you know, the kind of lyrics that I've mentioned before, songs like Jeremy that are trying to 
tell a, a deathly serious story. But here Andy Partridge is engaging directly with religious ideas and religious views and pretty boldly expressing them. Very boldly for a singer who at one point, and certainly at this point in his career, actually stopped touring altogether because of what he described as um, a stage fright that he couldn't overcome. So perhaps uh, bold words as a writer, not so bold as a performer, hard to say. The reason that I wanted to jump all the way, though, to the Nonsuch album was to talk about the lyrics to the ballad of Peter Pumpkinhead. I expect to read this one all the way through, and when I, I do, I think you're going to understand why uh, both of these very aggressive um, explorations of religious themes, uh, Peter, the ballad of Peter Pumpkinhead is much more palatable to me, much more consistent with my approach. Here, the, here are those lyrics. Peter Pumpkinhead came to town, spreading wisdom and cash around, fed the starving and housed the poor, showed the Vatican what gold's for. But he made too many enemies of the people who would keep us on our knees, who rave for Peter Pumpkin, who'll pray for Peter Pumpkinhead. Oh my. Peter Pumpkinhead pulled them all, emptied churches and shopping malls. Where he spoke, it would raise the roof. Peter Pumpkinhead told the truth. Peter Pumpkinhead put to shame governments who would slur his name. Plots and sex scandals failed outright. Peter merely said, any kind of love is all right. Peter Pumpkinhead was too good. Had him nailed to a chunk of wood. He died grinning on live TV. Hanging there, he looked a lot like you, and an awful lot like me. But he made too many enemies of the people who would keep us on our knees. Hooray for Peter Pumpkin. Who'll pray for Peter Pumpkinhead? That's essentially the lyrics to the song. I think uh, the first time that my parents heard that song, I really wasn't even playing it for them. As I recall, I was just uh, in, in my basement. And at the time in that house, we had uh, speakers upstairs and downstairs. And if you can remember how stereos used to work back when we had those big stereo systems, there was often an AB button. So you had a, a stereo control where you could play just the music downstairs or just the music upstairs or both. And when I thought I had the music just downstairs, kind of where the main stereo system was, I really still had it on both. And you, you can't tell. I mean, when you're downstairs, you can't hear what's going on a whole level above you. And as long as I could hear the, the music playing on my speakers, I knew that I was covered. Well, the whole time I'm down there, I'm picking tracks, I'm playing songs. And um, when I got back up the stairs, my parents were both like, well, that Peter Pumpkinhead song was pretty interesting. And you know what the fact is? They were right. I would rather hear a song by somebody who doesn't share my religious beliefs, maybe doesn't share my religious beliefs at all, who is willing to engage in those religious beliefs. This is, I've mentioned many times on this show, it is too easy for us to engage in acts of marginalization. So I say, bring on the music of somebody like XTC. I've got a handful of contemporary Christian artists that I like as much or more. And if I don't have room to allow these artists to share dialogue with each other based on the way I put a playlist on an MP3 player or pick songs to put onto a mixtape, then what hope do we have for us as individuals engaging in that dialogue? So if for no other reason than that, my different drummer this week, Andy Partridge. In the email exchange between me and my family and someone named Sam, I mentioned directly the uh, proposed prayer in school amendment 
there have been a lot of these, really, going all the way back to the Reagan administration, where from time to time, people have suggested stacking the Supreme Court, passing a law that would force a court challenge, amending the U.S. Constitution, trying to find a way to restore this idea of you know, daily public prayer in schools, uh, teacher-led or at the very least student-led uh, group prayer in schools. And one of the things that I think is really important, if I'm serious about this open exchange of ideas and going in great detail and saying, hey, here's where I as a Christian disagree with some of my fellow Christians, with some of the politicians, with some people out in the greater community, both in my nation and in my world, who may not see things the same way I do. I am not planning to win any discussion, debate, or argument by having the right sort of pithy, scathing insult. I'm not planning to shut down conversation by coming up with the best headline or the best slogan. I am more than willing to go into incredible detail about the reasons why I believe one way or another. So to that end, I'm going to start something today, finish it in the next show, covering in as much detail as I think is appropriate and brace yourself, it's a fair amount of detail. This question, should a prayer in school amendment stand a prayer of success? I've got an answer to that. Let me introduce some thoughts, and I'll pick up with it next week, both with our different drummer and the balance of this particular essay that I've written over the course of many years, putting my thoughts together on why prayer is so important to me that I'm not yet convinced that even the people who talk about prayer in schools get it hey everybody this is rich from movies you should see i'd just like to take a minute to remind you that you can now get movies you should see year four available for download on musicalmousemat.com it's only 12.99 at the moment it's got 44 fantastic episodes including the tom cruise special which still sounds like something rude the bill paxton special the listener movie awards everything it's all in there you really need to go and get this box set and don't forget, you can still get year one, two, and three as well. So, what are you waiting for? Go and get all four years of movies you should see on musicalmousemat.com. Depending upon the source, an amendment to the U.S. Constitution designed to formalize prayer in public schools will either reverse the damage done since the turbulent and destructive 1960s, or it will compromise the very foundation of our hard-fought liberty. Even if a different answer is true, that prayer in schools is more of a significant political issue or political campaign tactic than a solution to our strife. The issue deserves more careful consideration than it is received from either side. Proponents of the campaign to amend the Constitution seem to take the documentation of their case for granted. Opponents hide behind the state side of so-called church and state issues and therefore miss the complete picture. There are four ways of looking at prayer in schools as a constitutional amendment initiative. Two of them rely heavily on religion, and the other two rely heavily on history. They are the words of Jesus Christ, the U.S. Constitution itself, logic or common sense, and finally, faith. All of these elements are crucial. Conveniently, they all support the same conclusion. Before I begin by examining what Jesus said, let's first isolate what we mean by a prayer in schools amendment. Allow me to stipulate a few things. One, prayer exists in school today. It exists in school today because children pray while they are at school. School administrators and teachers are forbidden by tradition, school rules, and presidential executive orders, most recently by Bill Clinton, 
from stopping a student's communication with her or his God. Nothing in any court decision undermines or interferes with this policy. A student may always privately pray to God. 2. The form of prayer urged by proponents of constitutional amendments is not a private communication between God and believer. Rather, it is a public and formal display, preferably spoken aloud in either call-and-response or memorized form. 3. Since this form of prayer would come at a prescribed time and place within a daily ritual, it would be safe to describe this communication as unidirectional. The goal is for a group of children to simultaneously address God. There is no formal plan or provision for God to respond. When we look to the Bible for guidance on pressing social issues, it is important to gauge our expectations. Should we look first to the commands of Jesus Christ? As Christians, I believe the answer to that is an emphatic yes. If Jesus has directed an answer to our question, then we know God has spoken, and we don't need to shore up the word of the Lord with supportive apostolic material. That said, we may still struggle to incorporate a specific command into national public policy, and we should take note before proceeding. If, for example, we use Jesus' definition of adultery and imprisoned all adulterers, I wonder if we would have any citizens available to serve as prison guards. Quoting Jesus, You have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks lustfully at a woman has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 and 28. One more thing we must note before applying biblical words to modern problems. Definitions. Do we have a clear understanding of what Jesus is saying down to the very word? Let's try an example. Synagogue. What is a synagogue? It's a trick question. You see, if you said that a synagogue is a Jewish church, you would be absolutely correct looking back more than 1,900 years. Small problem. The definition would be wrong in Jesus' time. During Christ's ministry, the church, as we would define it today, was the temple. Only since the destruction of the temple, a generation after the crucifixion of Christ, did the Jewish people rely on the synagogue fully for, quote, church, unquote. When Jesus refers to synagogue, he is referring to a less formal, more public place of religious education, social engagements, and, you know, some worship. When Mary and Joseph found Jesus in the synagogue, to whom was the boy speaking? Not priests or Sadducees, but scribes and teachers. You could safely define synagogue as the public educational centers of Hebrew society. That definition is different in significant ways from church, and it should stand as a warning to look closely at what is meant by the words we find in the Bible. So what did Jesus say to help us decipher right from wrong in this heated national debate about the role of prayer in public schools? He addressed this issue once, clearly and unambiguously as well, during the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said, When you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by men. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door, and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 and 6. Let's call attention to one phrase in particular. You must not. Jesus did not use this expression often, 
preferring in most cases to use parables to describe right from wrong rather than to dictate. We could claim that it is not always appropriate to make decisions about public policy matters while relying solely on the words of Jesus. If we are making a public policy decision as Christians in the name of Christ, it still would be wise to avoid being on the wrong side of his you-must-not commands. And yet here we are, trying to change the U.S. Constitution in a manner that would force schools, in many cases against their judgment or their will, to do what Christ has commanded us not to do. When we lead children to stand and pray in the public educational centers of American society, aloud and in unison so that all can see the example they are setting, I am certain that we will not receive the reward in heaven that proponents of such constitutional amendments insist we will. How can I be so sure? Well, Jesus said so. The Lord said it. I believe it. That settles it. Right? And I'll leave you with that question. Thanks for listening.